once again, thank you for being here. My name is Pastor Ryan. This morning, we're going to be studying from uh, the New Testament book of John, John chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to John chapter 12. If you use your iPad or your iPhone, no problem. That's what I do all the time. So John chapter 12, we're going to start at verse 20 and go through the end of the chapter. So the teaching, actually, what we're going to read about today starts out rather undramatically. There's a lot of verses in the Bible where it starts out with a big debate, a miracle, something miraculous happens, whatever, leads, you know, and then a big teaching comes. But today, our start is not like that. What we simply have is some people that have heard about Jesus, and they go to try to find him, to meet him, right? So verse 20, it actually starts out, and it says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. So Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip then in turn told Jesus. So again, nothing dramatic here, but there's still something very, very good going on. We have people who have heard about Jesus. They've heard. Something he's done, something he said has struck a chord with them, so they actually make an effort to go find him. They want to know more about him, and that's exactly what's supposed to happen. And when they arrive to this location, they find one of the disciples, a guy named Philip. They tell him, Philip goes to get Andrew, and then both of them go to Jesus Christ. Now, here's where things take an interesting turn. Normally, when, let's say, you, someone says, hey, someone wants to meet you, there's usually three responses. You're like, well, sure, send them on in. Or number two, you know I'm a little busy, give me 20 minutes. Or three, maybe what, what do they want? What are they here for, right? But we're going to see Jesus, Jesus doesn't do anything like that. He responds in a completely different manner and then just gets really deep really quickly. But as we read his response, keep in mind he always has the long game in mind. He has his purpose, why he's here, and that's what this is about, right? So let's read that now. He starts at verse 23 and goes to 26. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, It remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Okay, so I think we can all agree there's some big stuff in here, and Jesus took this request for people to meet him in a completely different direction. Right? There immediately goes, wait, what? Right? First off, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He says, the hour has come. Now, this statement actually stands in contrast to a number of other times where Jesus has specifically said, my hour, my time has not yet come. Now, the first time he said something like that was in John chapter 2, where they're at a wedding, Jesus and the disciples and his mother, and they run out of wine. And his mother says, hey, they ran out of wine. And Jesus responds, why are you telling me, woman? My time has not yet come. The other time he says it, it's in John chapter 7, a little later on, where actually, this is kind of funny, I think, his brothers, he actually had brothers, were around him, and they're trying to convince him to do more miracles in public. Like, hey, we need to generate a little more buzz. Why don't you do some, we'll get some people, we'll sell some tickets, let's get t-shirts, Let's get the word out there. You need to start doing this stuff and do it visible. Like, you know, light show, all this stuff. Smoke, mirrors, you got it. And Jesus responds, my time has not yet come. 
It's not here. That's not what I'm here for. I move according to God's timing. There's a greater purpose. But now in this chapter, what we're reading in this verse, Jesus responds differently. He says, now my time has come. It's time for me to be glorified. So what's the difference? Like, why now? Well, first off, the sign that the Greeks, these people came to see him, they came to see him for the right reason. They wanted to learn about the Messiah. They wanted to know who he actually was. They didn't ask for a miracle. They didn't ask for a cool trick, right? They just simply wanted to know. And that stands in contrast to the stuff that we just talked about. The other thing we need to note is that when Jesus, when he says his hour has come, he also says it's time for him to be glorified. Now, that's a very, very specific word. Uh, When's the last time any of you used the word glorified in normal conversation? Right? We don't talk like that, right? It's very specific. It's very unique, right? So biblically, the word glorified, it means greatness, splendor, honor, praise, worship. So if you can wrap all those things into one concept, that's what it means. So Jesus is saying it's time for people to realize who he is, to comprehend, to understand his role, all that stuff. And then he will be glorified. Everything he did, all the miracles, simply point to the fact of who he is, and that's the Messiah, right? And now it's time. It's time for people to know that. And that's a big announcement. Now, interestingly, after all that, then he says a little more. He says, unless a kernel of wheat falls through the ground and dies... It remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces seeds. And he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates it will keep it. And whoever serves me must follow me. Now the idea is what he's doing is connecting all those things with his coming death on the cross, with his purpose as the Messiah. He's worthy to be glorified because of what he's about to do. Right? And this is, this is where it gets interesting because it's going to start to apply to us in verses 25 and 26. So let's read that. Because again, this really applies to us. And this, I'm going to read a little slow because there's certain Bible verses that you read and people go, oh, that sounds nice. And they just whip on and keep going. This is not one of those verses. Verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Think about those words. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. And my Father will honor the one who serves me. So Jesus, what he's saying is that whatever is true for him must be true for his followers. And think about it like this. If Jesus loved his life more than us, would he have died on the cross? No. Who, why would you do that? Why would you go through that? If he loved his life more than us, he would have been doing more miracles. To show, you know, have smoke and mirrors and all that. He'd do a whole light show. It would be awesome, right? T-shirt gun. <laughs> out of the crowd. Totally serious. But he, that wasn't what this was about. And because he loved us more than himself, he gave himself up for us. And he says, my followers must do the same. There's no difference. We must be willing to give up our lives, our pursuits, our own interests, what we think is important, to follow Jesus. There is no other way. And it's not that way because I said it. It's because he said it. And he says, wherever I am, my followers must be also. If I'm serving the lost and the forgotten, so are you. If I'm dying on the cross, you're right there with me. And here's the tough one. If I'm dying on the cross and I'm forgiving the people who just did, who whipped me, beat me, nailed me, if I'm forgiving them, what are you doing? Forgiving them. There is no difference. And that's hard. That's tough. And let's be honest, that's not vague. 
right? We understand exactly what he said. You can't read that and go, boy, I just don't get it. You know, we know what he means. The other thing you may have noticed, the Bible doesn't tell us what Jesus, if he responded at all to those Greek people that came to see him. It doesn't say anything. Were they just left hanging? Were they still there to get invited in? It doesn't say. Whatever did happen, though, John, the author of this book, felt it was way more important to tell us what Jesus said, his purpose to focus on that, than whatever happened there. That's the message we need to take from this. That's what John wants us to know. He was there, he saw it, and that's all that, must ma- that's all that matters. We need to follow in Jesus' footsteps. And when we do that, we begin to glorify him. Now, now Jesus is going to switch gears, and he's going to talk about how difficult things are going to be for him coming up. It's going to be in verses 27 and 28. He says, now my soul is troubled. It's troubled, and what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? He says, no, it was for this reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus is actually being quite transparent about what's coming. And it troubles his soul. He's saying out loud, listen, it's going to be awful. Awful in every way what I'm going to go through. The suffering that I'm going to be there. And it's natural to want a way out. Should I ask God for like a get, a get out of jail free card? Should I ask for a reprieve? He says no. And he answers his own question, not for his benefit, but for ours, for all of us here. He says it's because of the suffering. It's because of my death that's coming. That's why I'm here. That's the point. Like I, like, I say, I like to say, he says the hard part out loud. That's what awaits my followers sometimes. Just because the world works against you and may persecute you, there's no reason to bow out. We need to stay strong. It's perfectly okay to say, this is hard. I don't know how I'm going to do this. It's okay, but we need to stay strong. And when we do that, then we show that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah. And next, it tells us there's a voice from heaven. It's talking about glorifying his name. It says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And what God is saying is, he's already glorified his name, and once again, he's going to do it through the work of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, people are going to see who God is. They're going to see his power. Now, there's something else that happens, and we're going to go to verse 31 and 33. Jesus says something important. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now he starts off with now the time, now is the time for judgment of this world. This is, this is really important to understand because it leads into why Jesus came to this earth. There is judgment. There is a penalty. I mean, far too often in our in our culture today, people have this idea, and I say this frequently, that Jesus is this really nice, long-haired, hippie-tip guy. Everyone's okay, you're okay, love, it's going to win, you know. Jesus is talking about judgment. There is a penalty to be, to be paid. There's a cost for our sin. Jesus is loving and forgiving, but he is dead serious about sin and judgment. There's a real price. And because, he also says, because of his coming death, he will defeat Satan. And that's what it means when he says the prince of this world is going to be driven out. Satan will be defeated totally and completely. So when we say, or hear somebody say, the work is done, that's what we're referring to. And because Jesus is going to do this, he's going to shine brightly. And he says this out loud, all the little pieces so his disciples are going to understand. 
what he's doing is laying the groundwork for them to put all the pieces together. Because while we have the entire Bible and we can read through it, this is all happening firsthand for the disciples. They don't understand. As we're going to see, they don't always get that he's about to die. And when they hear that, some of them are like, wait a second, whoa, 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 whoa. So Jesus is really putting these pieces together. He's helping them in the long run. All right? Because after remember, when Jesus does get arrested, do the disciples all kind of band together and stick together and follow him? And we're going to get you out of here. We're a good lawyer. What do they do? They scatter. A bunch of adults run and hide. They do. And what happens? They get extreme tunnel vision. They're only worried about themselves, so they're going to forget everything. So Jesus is being very careful, very, very methodical. This is why this is happening. This is why this is happening. So that way they remember and they write it all down. And we know it works. Why? Because John did. He wrote all this down for us. He was an excellent teacher. Let's go to uh, continue to verse uh, 34. Then the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So what's happening is the people there, it was a common idea that the Messiah, when they came into the world, would be this powerful king that would, all their enemies would cower in fear. Like when King David was at his best, he was unstoppable. That's their idea of the Messiah. Anything other than that would be like, what are you talking about? They didn't want to hear that. It was very common. Even the disciples had that view. So every time Jesus mentions that he's going to die, he's going to suffer, somebody was regularly going, what are you talking about? Hold on, pump the brakes there. That's just where it came from. And, and in a way, you can't blame them. Who were their previous leaders? Think about Moses. What did Moses do? Moses stood before the Pharaoh, which is basically an, a, a dictator, and said, let my people go. And what did he do? He let them go. And then King David, again, when he was with God, he was unstoppable. So that's their idea. The problem was, and again, this is very important, they were forgetting their personal responsibility. They were forgetting the reason why all this exists, and that's because of their sinners, because they have sinned. Remember, every time they sin, what do they have to do regularly at the temple? Offer a sacrifice. Undeniable, every time. And here's the other part, the reason we know they're sinners. There was an area of the temple that was so holy, what happened if they went in there when they weren't supposed to? They struck dead. What happened if they touched the Ark of the Covenant that was holy? They were struck dead. So there's, God is immensely holy, they are sinful, and they're forgetting that whole relationship. And that's why Jesus came, to erase that, to solve that problem. And that's what this is about. Now let's go on to verse 35 and 36. Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may come, become children of the light. When he finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So his point is, what he wants them to focus on is that they do not have him forever. Actually, the time is very short. They need to focus. While he's with them, he is the light. They need to understand that. They need to make him a priority. And that's a really good metaphor. And because when they become, uh, believe in him, they become children of the light. They take on his light. and They become a, a bright spot in dark places. And, but that's nothing we can claim credit for. It's all about him. Now, later in the book of John, in chapter 15, Jesus takes this uh, idea a little further when he says, I am the vine and you are the what? 
the branches. It's the same thing. Now, what's really interesting, though, and this, a lot of people forget this, or they breeze by this. In verse 36, we just read what Jesus did after he finished speaking. It says he did what? He hid himself from them. He hid himself. Jesus, the Messiah, intentionally hid himself from everybody there. So imagine, imagine if that was all of us. Like, look around the room. Look how many people we got here. We're all here learning from Jesus and the disciples. He says all this cool stuff. All of a sudden, everybody goes, wait, where'd he go? Where did he go? We're all there for a reason. He disappears on purpose. On purpose. Now, think about that. Why on, why on earth would he do that? Why would he put people through that? If we really begin to think about what he is trying to do, his purpose is going to start making sense. And what I'm about to say, boy, does it apply today to everybody here. The purpose of Jesus was not simply to come and teach. That was a small piece of it. The purpose of the church, why you're here, is not to fill the pews. Jesus came to change lives. To have people realize their sin, repent, be baptized, become disciples, and then repeat. Go out and make more disciples. And in order for that to happen, he can't stand next to them the entire time. He needs to teach and step away and see what the people do. And this, this is very true. Think about it. When he, when he gave all those teachings, there would have been three, one of three responses. Number one, people heard it, and man, they were changed. It moved them. They were not the same person. Every, everything in their life would have been number two because they wanted to know more. Who is this guy? What happens? Like blah, blah, blah. Right? That's number one. Number two is someone says, man, that's cool. Wow. And then they go home, and it's still sitting there. There's a little, there's a little seed in there, that, and they have to think on it, and they have to mull it over. And then the third person is like, man, that's awesome. Hey, I'm late for golf. Let's get over there. And they immediately do what? Go right back to their life like nothing ever happened. But for that to happen, Jesus has to step away. He has to create space for them to even examine their life to see if it's something they value. And this happens today. There's actually a really great example of this happening in my own personal life. After I became a pastor, I'm from Illinois, I went back to my high school reunion, and I, uh, I think it was 15, and I was, my best friend from high school is a guy named Mark, and at one point, and I love this, because when people find out you're a pastor, a lot of people sometimes they'll ask a question you can tell they've kind of been thinking on, right? Something big. And they got kind of quiet, and he goes... Why did you become a pastor? And he's a Christian. We went to church together. He says, but why? Why did you do that? That's a good question. That particular question I get asked very, very rarely. And so I thought about it for a second. Because this is an opportunity I did not want to blow. right? And so I said, well, um, at some point, I understood what Jesus was saying. I mean, I, I understood it. So at that point, I either needed to go, mm, I got my own stuff I want to do, that's enough, I'm done. You know, and I just kind of, you know. Or I did something with it. And I said, that's it. You get to the point where you understand it, and then you either ignore what you know, 
or you do something. You step up to the plate and you do something. And he was like, oh. Now what's cool is about seven years later, him and his wife became missionaries. So he was like a little bit behind, but he was, the wheels were turning and, there was, and he was asking, and that was, that was beautiful. That's exactly what happens today. And the way this re- relates to, I mean, everybody here, look around you, everybody touch your own chest because this applies to you. Every one of you, if 20, 30, 40 years from now, you were sitting in the exact same spot and you haven't done anything, we have failed you. I have failed you, Pastor Craig, Pastor Joey. That is not what this is about. We love having you guys here and that should be. We are here to make disciples, to introduce people who don't know Jesus, introduce them to Jesus, to have them realize their sin, turn their life over, get baptized, fabulous, train them as disciples, and then send them out. In some way, in some form, you can do that. There's so many ways you can serve. There's so many things you can do. But for that to happen, at some point, even we have to step back a little bit and see what's on your heart, what you want to do. A way to think about this is when we were little or if we have kids, when they learn to ride a bike, what do you do all along? At least at the beginning, you have to you hold on, you help them out, right? But at some point, what do you have to do? Let go. Let go. And you know sometimes they're, they're going to they're gonna wipe out. You know that's going to happen, right? Same thing as adults. But at some point, Jesus has to give all the teaching, say the important stuff, and then completely remove himself and see what people do. See what people want to do. He was giving space for people to grow, to choose to follow him, to learn more, to mull it over, or to walk away, to make their own choice. So ironically, after Jesus teaches this, as he says all this, he then creates space to see what happens. People start to show their true colors. And this is verses 37 to 41. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. So they could neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts. Nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So it says quite plainly in verse 37, everything Jesus did, and people saw a lot of stuff. There were some people, no matter what they saw, they weren't going to believe. It wasn't going to happen. And this this really highlights an important part. Uh, When you start to step out in your own faith and whatever you do, this is, please note this. There are some people that you're going to talk to. There's some people you're going to open your heart to, and you're going to say your deepest, like, this is so powerful to me, and they're going to be like, nothing. You can't take that personal. Some people don't want to know, or they only want superficial information. Like one of the things that I do when I talk about Jesus Christ, and I just begin to perceive in just some small way, they don't really, like, "Mm," you know, it's too much. Because as a pastor, I can really get, we can get really theological or whatever. So I say, do you, you want to know about Jesus? Do you want to know what he said and what his purpose is? Or you just want to know if he was like real? Was he a real dude? How old was he? Was he actually Jewish? Was he Catholic? You know, he's eating all the kind of questions. People think that, right? And so I try to find out, because what I don't want to do is try to ram a square peg into a round hole. Because then what I do is I create 
a bad view of Jesus Christ, and I am not going to do that. If all I can do is say, listen, he was real. Even historians who are atheists acknowledge Jesus was, in fact, a real person. He had disciples that genuinely believed he was the Messiah, and then they gave their lives to spread that. If that's all I can get out, that's something. That's a start. So if you ever share something and it doesn't go that well, they don't seem to care, it's their choice. But we're here to make Jesus look, look good. And that's what we do. Now the other part of what we just read and seem a bit shocking and caused some misunderstanding is in verse 40. And what it says is, he blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so they could neither see with their eyes nor understand. On a first, it, it, it almost makes it sound like God is preventing them from seeing or hearing the good news, and that's not what it means. What it's saying to us is that people have already turned their nose to the gospel. They've already turned their head away from Jesus Christ. They have no decision. I mean, they've already made their decision. They don't want to know. They're there for super, superficially. They have no interest. And when that happens, there is a form of judgment where God says, if that's what you want, you've made your own decision, then that's what you're going to get. If you've already blinded yourself, you'll be blinded further. You've already hardened your heart, fine, harden it a little more. But that is serious stuff. Now, as we continue into verses 42 and 43, we see that some people do believe, but there's a catch. Let's read that now, verse 42. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, they believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. So there's people present. They're leaders within the temple. They're leaders. I mean, that's cool, right? And they believed in Jesus Christ. They totally believed. But they were too scared to say it publicly. For what the Pharisees heard about it, they get in a lot of trouble. Now, just a quick reminder. The Pharisees were a very, very influential sect within Judaism. Uh, they were very powerful back then. They were known for their piety, their strict adherence to the law. I mean, the, like the speed limit's 30 you go 30.00001, you've broken the law and you're in big trouble. There is, there is no room. That's it. They were extremely powerful. And the actual the word uh, Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word for separation. So you had the entire world. You had Jews who separated themselves out. And then within Judaism, they separated themselves out even further. Right? They were strict. They had a lot of power, a lot of influence. It turns out they got so powerful, even the other leaders within the Judaism didn't cross them. Even if they thought the Messiah, the Messiah is here. If the Pharisees disagreed with you, what did you do? Because they would kick you out of the synagogue. Now, that doesn't necessarily sound as bad to us as it was back then. But back then, they were Jews, and there was one synagogue. They were Jews as a nation, as a people, and as a religion. And if the leaders could kick you out, it meant you were banished. You were done. Like here... This wouldn't happen, but let's say we kicked you out of the church. How many other Christian churches are there in town? It doesn't affect you. It was everything that you were done if that happened. So their leaders were afraid to cross them. So what, it sounds kind of funny, but when Jesus was there with the disciples, they would have been in that crowd going, yes, that's awesome, that's good stuff, love it. Pharisees come around, they're like, oh, that guy, Jesus is awful. Ooh, someone needs to do something about him. So they would flip-flop. They would go back and forth, right? Now, obviously, there's a huge, huge problem, and it has to do with their faith. 
So here's one of the big points. If you take anything from today, this is one of them. True faith, true faith leads to discipleship. And that can never be hidden. It can't be minimized. It can't be covered over. Right? There, there's a, there's a, a, a Scottish minister named uh, William Barclay. He was a theologian. He wrote some good stuff. I would totally wish I would have thought this up. I didn't. He did. Let's go to that now. He says, either secrecy kills discipleship or discipleship kills the secrecy. Right? So if you're afraid... You're truly afraid. But if your faith grows and really grows, the secrecy goes away. You don't care because you truly believe in something. However, if you have faith and you start getting scared and scared and scared, then guess what? You just kill everything. So they cannot exist together. One wins out. They can't coexist. You can't have both. One is a poison to the other. And in verse 33, we also read, it gives us a window in their hearts because the reason that their faith wouldn't grow is that they loved human praise. Loved it. They loved it more than praise from God. They cherished human adulation. They would have been the ones that Jesus also complained about that did these long, fancy prayers for show. Said these words like adulation and supplication and all this other stuff. And people are going, yay! I don't know what that means, but that sounds great. Right? That's what, and that's what they did. That was huge. And they had these long trains. That was what it was about. They didn't value praise from God. And these were the leaders. So now after all that, Jesus said, he's going to give one, one last teaching to try to get them to understand. And we're going to read, as we read that now, look for what Jesus is saying and try to find the important parts, like, like the, the big important pearls he wants us to know. Starts at verse 44. It says, then Jesus cried out. So he said this loud with a lot of emphasis. Whoever believes in me, does not believe in me only, but the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I don't judge that person. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me. And does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them on the last day. For I do not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken. I know that this command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So there is, let's be honest, there's some really heavy stuff in there. So as we begin to examine that, we're actually going to start from the end and work our way back. This is going to bring it all together. So the last big point Jesus made that he keeps saying was he was sent by the Father. And everything he's saying, the Father is the one who commanded him to say it. His words are God's words. There is no separating the two. And there's also judgment for the ones who reject his words. There's a price for ignoring him. He's not there just dissing out uh, cool proverbs, neat things to say, little nuggets. His words are life. And he equates himself with God the Father. And he says, without him, we walk in darkness. Now, that's an interesting comparison because what he's saying is one, someone doesn't have to be evil to walk in darkness. Like we think of evil and darkness, we think of someone who's a murderer, rapist, whatever, all that kind of awful stuff, right? According to Jesus, what he just said is you simply don't, you just don't have to believe in him. And you have, you're in darkness. So we all know people, if we think about it, family, friends, coworkers, 
who are good people by human standards, right? Good people, but they don't know Jesus. So what are they in? They're spiritually in darkness. And that's because Jesus said that, not me. So that's a distinction. Someone does not have to be evil in our eyes to be in darkness. They just, there has to be an absence of Jesus Christ. And that's a big deal. The statement's actually, when you think about it, it's not vague. It's one of those things you can't read it and be like, oh, geez, what does he mean by that? Right? And it doesn't matter who you are, who your family is, how much money you have, your nationality, it doesn't matter. You simply, if you don't have Jesus, then you walk in darkness. And when Jesus spoke these words, he meant them for the world. It wasn't just the people he was talking to. So here's the question. This, this, because everything we talked about needs to come back to us, because that's exactly how Jesus meant it. So the question today is, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Do you have his life? Do you believe that God sent him to save you from your sins? That's the question. If you've never answered that question, you should. If no one's given you that chance today, that's what we're going to do. Everything that we do in this church, in this building, is about making Jesus Christ known and changing lives. So if you would like to give your life over to Jesus Christ, if you haven't, we're going to give you an opportunity. In a a minute, we're going to pray. All you have to do is quietly, to yourself, say the words that I'm saying. What you say is between you and God. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. Today I ask Jesus to come into my life and to make me new. I ask him to forgive me, to save me, and to guide my steps for the rest of my life. Father, today I also ask for strength in tough times. I ask for faith to trust you when I can't see the road ahead. I want to trust and I want to lean on you above all things. I thank you for this life that you've given me. I thank you for the church. And most of all, I thank you for sending your son Jesus to save me. In his name, I ask all these things. Amen.